This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody tonight? I have a couple business items, I guess, to take care of before we start class. The first one is I want to ask everybody to do me a favor if you can. My rating on Spotify is kind of low for some reason. I don't know if I pissed somebody off or what, but you can't tell by looking at it how many stars you have. It just gives you an overall number. And mine, last time I checked, was 4.2, which is kind of low. I mean, I'm not real happy about it. So if you can, please give me a five-star review on Spotify. The other thing is, last year, I stopped for a holiday break, or I call it a year-end or season-end break. And I'm going to be honest, this case has, for some reason, really taken an emotional toll on me. So this year, I'm going to take it a little earlier than I had planned. After this one is done, thank God, which I can't wait for, I have one I want to do that was a request that should be pretty simple and short. That was asked for a while ago. And then I promised one for my niece. So after that, I'm going to be taking my break. And the last episode of the year, we are going to have a party. I don't, I don't know if you did, but I did when I was a kid in school. You know, the last day of school before Christmas break, you would have a party with like candy and I don't know, whatever. Well, this year, we're going to do some fun things. And I'm asking for people on social media to contribute things. If you've seen questions that I've asked that might seem kind of random, well, I have something planned. But that's what we're going to do. So the game plan for this last episode of Daryl Brooks is I told you I wanted to talk a little bit about his social media. And I hate to give him any more attention, but I want to illustrate, I think, I don't think I should have to say how obnoxious he is because we should know that by now, but a different kind of obnoxious, very narcissistic in case you haven't figured that one out. Then I want to show or play some audio from his trial of him being absolutely disgusting. And if you haven't watched any of the trial anywhere, when you hear these clips of him acting up in court, you're going to be like, holy shit, did he just say what I think he said? Or did he just do that? And the answer is going to be yes. So I just want to talk a little bit about his behavior during the trial. And I'm not going to go over any victim impact statements if you want to see those, they're like I said, they're all over YouTube. The Law and Crime channel is probably probably the best source. There's various news outlets that covered the trial and the sentencing. I'll go over briefly what he was sentenced to. Spoiler alert, pretty much forever. And last but not least, psychology. And I wanted to hug the judge when she did this. He had four psych evaluations. She actually read one in court, and I was hanging on every word. 
It was pretty much what I thought a psychologist would say about him, but I want to play it for you and then talk about it. He did get some diagnoses, so I want to go over those. And also some things that his mother and grandmother said. I want to play for you and talk about them, and you'll see why. And, well, I'll just give you a little spoiler. His mother and grandmother, and I'm not the only person who said this, are a big part of why Daryl Brooks is the way he is. But first, I want to talk about his social media. And you can learn a lot about somebody by looking at what they post on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, etc., etc. For example, if you follow me on Facebook or Instagram, it's real obvious that I love hockey. I'm a huge Avs fan. I'm a pug mom. I have like a million pictures of Nathan everywhere. I love animals in general. I always have pictures of animals, cute animals, animal videos, a lot of capybaras. They're like my dream pet. You can tell by the memes and jokes I post that I have a disturbed, twisted sense of humor. Well, if we look at Daryl Brooks' social media posts, we have a wealth of information that tells us, just in case you weren't sure, that he's a shit person. Now, I already played that TikTok for you, the one about Erica. So you can get a pretty good idea just from that, what was that, 15 seconds? Just from that little snippet of what he thinks of women. And that is kind of like the dominant theme throughout his life. Most of his accounts, like Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, which he was very active on, have been removed for obvious reasons. But I was lucky enough to capture some of them by searching for them. And I, the ones I found, I put on my Instagram so that you can see them. Probably to nobody's surprise, he's got a real problem or hatred for the police. It's also going to become obvious that that extends to government in general. He had a meme on Instagram that... It says, beware of violent street gangs, and has a picture of a police officer. And I'm sure you can get the message. He says stuff about Hitler, um, like praising Hitler. And from what looks like Facebook in 2020, which is pretty recent, he has uh, like a meme, like a, it's a picture of Hitler, and it's pretty small, so it's, it's hard to read. But his own words say, Quote, so when we start back knocking white people the fuck out, I want to hear it. The old white people, too, knock them the fuck out, period, end quote. That is quite disturbing. Then he says something about Jews, and he says on another social media post, World War Three would start when people, quote, learned Hitler was right and did the world a favor by killing Jews, end quote. That's what you call hate speech. That's hate or the, I guess, violent speech directed towards a certain race, gender, population, etc. So he has this violent rhetoric and themes going throughout most of his social media posts. In 2019, he put on 
I don't know which exact account this was, so somewhere on social media. Quote, in case y'all don't know how fucked up my city is, I got ties to Detroit. My dad whole family from the D, and I was born and grew up in Milwaukee. Who ain't from the trenches? Question mark. End quote. Not real sure exactly what that means, but... And he comments on politics, too. He had this to say about President Obama. Quote, Americans don't be fooled by this good-talking-ass president. And then he refers to him as an N-word who says BS. This one isn't really bad. It's just stupid. He, it looks like Twitter. I'm not real familiar with Twitter, but it looks like that's what it is. He has a picture of marijuana in a plastic bag. And the quote is, what can I say? And then the hashtag true stoner. And that's just stupid. That's just saying, look, I have marijuana here. So he was actually an aspiring rapper. Yes, he was a rapper. And he used to have his own channel on YouTube, but that got yanked. I don't know if, if I should say fortunately or unfortunately, you can still find his rap videos out there. And I want to address them, not to give him any attention as a artist, but just to try to understand him some more. And we'll make fun of him because I think that's necessary. And show you a little bit more about him. He had an account on something called SoundCloud. I'm assuming something to do with music, but the biography of this thing, he said he, quote, grew up in dangerous west side neighborhood of Washington Park in Milwaukee, but had multiple legal battles and a desire to turn life lived on the streets into music, end quote, which actually sounds pretty good. And I think probably a lot of rapper hip-hop, which I grew up listening to, so I'm, I guess I would say I'm a fan of. A lot of that type of music and that culture, I think, is the artist turning their life experiences into music. So some of his lyrics from his songs, he refers to himself as a terrorist and a killer in the city. Kind of interesting. And he's got one song with a lovely title, Gun Kill You. That's spelled G-O-N-K-I-L-L, letter U. And one of the lyrics in that song goes, sliding through the city with no safety on. A more disturbing lyric is found on one of his mixtapes. And I don't know which song this comes from, but it goes, quote, I push the gas on you and words, end quote. So considering what he ended up doing three times in the parade, of course. He ran over Erica, and he tried to run over that one cop. That lyric kind of takes on a whole new meaning. Then on his Twitter page, he describes himself as, quote, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, born and raised, rapper, songwriter, producer, stoner, next big thing out the Midwest. If you ain't no, get in tune, end quote. Then, ever the narcissist. He describes himself as, quote, now considered the best underground artist in his city. Keep looking out for some more big moves, end quote. And in case you're wondering about the music, it sucks. Just take my word on that as somebody who 
listens to rap and hip-hop, and I'd like to think I kind of have good taste, and I know what should and what, it is, what isn't. Just trust me when I tell you that his music sucks. His rap name, I'd love to know the story behind this, was Math Boy Fly, and that's M-A-T-H-B-O-I, Fly. I have absolutely no explanation for that. Now, I just want to go over just to make sure everybody understands what happened before the Prague Massacre and how he ended up in Waukesha because we know that he lived in Milwaukee. Remember what he told the cops? He went to Milwaukee with some nameless person in some nameless car to some nameless person's house to watch the Packer game, met Erica in the park to get money from her. All of that is bullshit. He knew that Erica was there in a woman's shelter, and he wanted to see her for the same reason he always does, to start trouble. They did meet in the park where the parade was staging. As usual, they got into an argument over something. He hit her in the face, so she ran, and he followed her in the car. She called her friend named Corey, who was also staying in the shelter, and she said, come help me, he hit me. So the shelter must be real close to where they are because Corey's there really quick. So now you have the three of them getting into it. So Brooks hits, either hits or shoves Corey. Then he hops in the Ford and he drives off mad. He's in a rage. Why is he so mad? Because, and I have no way of knowing what he was thinking, but I'm just kind of guessing the thoughts that were going through his head. How dare she diss me? She doesn't want to talk to me, meaning Erica, of course. And then she brought reinforcements. She called a friend. She finally told him what he doesn't ever want to hear from a woman, which is no. She's probably said, leave me alone. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hang out with you. I don't want to have anything to do with you, et cetera, et cetera. So Corey comes and stands up for her. So now he's been stood up to by two women. And he is furious. He wants to go back to Milwaukee, but he's not real familiar with Waukesha. And I don't think that he knew that there was a parade going on, that he purposely thought, oh, there's a parade going on. I think I'll drive through it and run people down. I don't think he realized that there was a parade, but he had to know something because he saw all the police around and he saw the barricades. Remember when he first started going through the barricades. The one officer came up to his car, pounded on his car, and was yelling, stop. He even jumped in front of the car. Well, he ignored him, and he kept going. For five blocks, he drove through the parade, knowing full well people were in front of him. He knew he was hitting people. Bodies were coming up on the hood of his car, for fuck's sake. When his car finally stopped, he had Jenny's Christmas hat in his windshield wiper. One of the dance team's headbands was caught on his side mirror. So he definitely knew what he did. He was 100% aware of it. And just keep that in your head. Keep a note of that because it's going to come up later. So he's thinking, okay, what do I do? He knows what he did. He knows police will be on the lookout for his car or his mother's car. So he's like, okay, I got to dump this. He's in survival mode now. 
He's fully aware he just committed a crime and everybody will be looking for this car. So he makes his way to Elizabeth Street, which is just this random street, and he parks in somebody's driveway. He is actually seen on people's surveillance cameras running around in their yards. He sees a kid's playhouse. He goes into it. Remember when he did this before? And I said, take a note of this because it's going to come up again where he ditches the gray sweatshirt that he has on because he knows that the police will be looking for somebody in a gray sweatshirt. Remember the picture of him driving through the parade. You can clearly see he's got a gray hoodie on. So this is why he's running around in the cold in short sleeves. Again, totally aware of what he's doing. Knows he did wrong, consciously trying to hide to elude the police, get rid of evidence, etc. And he gets arrested. He's interrogated. We know the rest. His first court appearance. In Pennsylvania, we call it a formal arraignment. I don't know what they call it in Wisconsin. But the first time he goes before a judge was on Tuesday the 23rd. He reportedly sobbed and was hysterical. The DA Sue Opper said, quote, there are not words to describe the risks this defendant presents to our community after police risked their lives to try and stop him. He continued down the road, causing death and destruction in his path, end quote. Not surprisingly, and this is a very good thing, this incident started a backlash against Wisconsin's bail system. And remember the name I gave you of Cedric Cornwall. He was a court commissioner involved in setting bail, and he had been involved in two of Brooks's cases. He was reassigned to non-criminal cases as a result of this. So at first he had a public defender and he originally wanted to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but he changed his mind. He was examined by four different psychologists. One of them said that he was intelligent and articulate and able to defend himself and that he had a personality disorder, but no mental illness. And we'll talk about these psychologist reports later. So two weeks before the trial would start, he dismissed his attorneys and he's like, I want to defend myself. And I've never seen anybody do this who wasn't a psychopath, a narcissist, or both. Ted Bondi did this. Doug Clark, Nico Jenkins, you might be able to name a few of yourself. But in general, defending yourself is pretty much never a good idea. The trial started on October 3rd, just last month. It ended October 26th, and it captivated pretty much the world, mainly because of the horrific crime involved and Daryl Brooks' antics. And that's what I want to talk about now is his antics. He behaved like an absolute disgusting, narcissistic, rude, arrogant, loathsome, piece of human plankton. He interrupted constantly. He argued with the judge, talked back to her, bullied witnesses, spouted off crazy, nonsensical bullshit. And I have to describe this. One of his themes, okay, he had decided to call himself what's known as a sovereign citizen or sovsit for short. So I'll explain what this is. The FBI defines a sovereign citizen as 
an anti-government extremist who believes that even though they physically reside in this country, they are separate or sovereign from the United States. In other words, they are above the law. They think that they're not beholden to any government authority, like courts, any taxing entities, motor vehicle departments, or law enforcement. It's a far-right ideology, basically nonsense. And a lot of people try to use it, but it never gets them very far. The funny thing is, he didn't start this sovereign citizen bullshit until he was arrested this latest time. So he must have, somehow between his arrest and his trial, which is almost a year, he must have picked it up from somewhere. I don't know if it was somebody in the jail he met that told him about it or he read about it. I don't know. But he heard about it and he thought that this sounded like a good idea. And some of the things he said repeatedly in court were, is that a lawful law? Which there's no such thing as a lawful law. When somebody would call him Mr. Brooks or Daryl Brooks, he would say, I don't consent to being called that name. And a good question is, well, what the fuck do you want to be called then? There's really no answer to that. It, it has something to do with being a sovereign citizen. And like I said, there's no real answer. He continuously this judge, everybody that has commented on this case on YouTube and different groups, her name was Jennifer Dora. Everybody says she has the patience of a saint, best judge ever, and she was absolutely incredible the way she handled him. He constantly challenged her judicial authority. He tried to call the state of Wisconsin as a witness. He was trying to make the point that he said that he had the right to face his accuser, and which was the state of Wisconsin. But he either didn't or wouldn't understand that the state of Wisconsin is an entity. It's not a person that can be called to the stand. And he would always say the word grounds. And what this meant, I think I played you a couple things. And I told you he objected to every fucking thing every time, even the most innocuous of questions or comments, just to be obnoxious. So the judge would say, overruled or whatever, and he would go grounds, meaning he wants to know why was it overruled. And she humored him for a while. She said, well, it's, it is relevant or it's not argumentative or whatever. And eventually she just got tired of his bullshit and she went answering so I'm like, is he really that dumb or is he just trying to be difficult? And I'm pretty sure the answer is B. And this would be hysterical if we weren't talking about people being killed and maimed. The, the way he acts is it's hard to believe unless you actually see it or hear it. So I have compiled an audio clip of Daryl Brooks' greatest hits. And these clips show him at his most obnoxious interrupting, threatening, arguing, just being all around irritating. And like I said, you have to hear this to believe it. The trial lasted for like, what, two weeks. So these are little snippets from all over, all kinds of different places during the trial. Yes, I do. For the record, I don't consent to that name. Are we going to address subject matter jurisdiction? The written decision that I previously entered is what I will stand on. I'm not going to address it any is that, further. Is that verified proof? 
Can we address subject matter jurisdiction that still has to be proven for the record? 8.42 a.m. This court ordered Mr. Brooks be removed from the courtroom due to repeated uh, interruptions and disruption. Um, you can see that he is seated with his back uh, to the court or to the camera. He took his shirt off as well. I'm also told that he is threatening to throw and break items. Second of all, if we go down that road, we would be forced to counter that claim by pointing out that not only does the defendant not live with the child in question, he doesn't live with any of the other children that he has. He impregnated Erica Patterson when she was a minor in Nevada, and for doing so, he was convicted of statutory sexual seduction, pled guilty in March of 2007 to that felony offense, and is a sex offender on the registry as a result. So if there's any causation that would lead to Erica Patterson being a bad mom, Mr. Brooks has a direct role in that causation. And that's furthermore today. I'm not because that's a lie. Let him finish. Let him finish. open the door on that. No, since he want to make a record and not be accurate, so let's be accurate all on the record since you think you know so much. So we can open the door on. We can open the door on how old she told me she was. Interrupting. We can ask that question Over the top. Animated. Mr. Brooks, I'm ordering you to sit down and to let the state finish. No, no, I'm not going to sit here and let somebody be accurate on the record and lie on the record. Right. Under Illinois versus Allen, I've warned him repeatedly he's being removed from the courtroom. And you know what? Let me dial that back. We're just going to take an early lunch. One hour, we'll be back. And uh, unless he brings that letter, then he can show it is inadmissible. He will not be questioned. And under 906.11, I will declare the cross-examination. Get your back straight. So let's let's open the door on all of it again so we can get all of it on the record. Since you think you know so much. Did you know she said she was 18 when I met her? Did you know that? By the defendant and the court with So that had to be that had to be said. That, 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 that. That's not how it was said. That, that was how I said you want to run the record back? Mr. Brooks. So I'm the only one. I got one. Mr. I got Brooks. one ear there working. I heard that. This on, is man. to benefit you so that no, you not. understand Ain't none your of this witness to me, so let's has be clear a prior record. Your Honor, when I leave the table, I'm away from the courtroom and I have to elevate my voice. This is the so alleged record of ableless time. Stop talking. Oh, man. Like, I don't oh. know who y'all think we all fooling. I set the value in terms of value. This, uh, document. One more interruption and you're going to be removed to the next courtroom. That's what you want to do anyway. It's not what I want to do. Do not interrupt Attorney Opera. So can Your you Honor, say, I can believe you he has seven prior criminal convictions. The uh, OWI second from 1997 and OWI third from 1997. I believe they took them away previously because you were so agitated they were perhaps afraid you might break yeah, it Yeah, I'm still agitated. I'm a fat man agitated. I believe it answers your questions. I, I don't believe Unequivocally. So. There's no ver verified proof proving yet. No verified proof if, if we're in common law or admiralty law. What court is this? Sir, I believe your answers will be in that decision and order. I don't believe so. Well, have you read it yet? I don't have to, based on the Sixth Amendment, if I'm not able to face my accuser, then how can the claim even stand? How can how can a claim be brought against my client if I'm not able to face the accuser? 
sustain that. So it will be also fair to state that you are, are not an injured party in this matter, correct? Objection asked and answers. Um, sustained. Are you aware what a plaintiff is? That's irrelevant. Grounds. Sustained. Grounds for the sustain, Your Honor. Yes. You're trying to coerce me into violating my right to remain silent. How can how can you how can you coerce me into my right to remain silent? So you're not going to protect my constitutional right? Because I didn't answer nothing that you uh, was trying to ask me before when I had the headphones on, and you can't make a decision for me. You can't do that. You're violating my constitutional right when I know you can't tell me what I decided to do because I didn't decide to do or not do it. They have the power. They have the power to nullify You are absolutely not allowed to tell the jury that. There's a jury instruction that I will have ready to go if you even attempt to raise the issue of jury nullification, also, sir. You have also, absolutely no right to raise that. That is clear. I, I, I can raise what I want to raise. For the record, I'm not a person. I'm a human being. If I have a right to be present, then I have a right to not be present. How can this take place? If I don't agree or consent to being present, how can it even still take place without without uh, it, me? It will take place, sir. I'm just going to honor your request not to be there. I'm asking a question, though. How can it take place without my consent or agreement? That it would be the same thing. I take that. I take that as disrespect because they were allowed to say something, and I said under my breath that was disrespect. Well, I they would just direct both parties thing. to avoid commentary. Okay, well, can you do that, please, and, and admonish yes, them? Because I'm will. always Absolutely. the one getting admonished. Everyone. I take that as disrespect too. Sir, I'm good. Can I do my job? I'm advising both parties to show decorum and restraint. Next question, please. I don't, I don't got any more questions, man. All right. Thank you. This is my body. Detective, you may step down. I'll excuse the jury. What you people are trying to do is not fair. Hide from the jury repeatedly. Don't tell them all the information Mr. Brooks, they need I'm to going to take up all of your objections outside the presence of the jury. I ask that you honor my decision to do that and you show courtesy and decorum. Because you asked. Mr. Brooks, please. Because you asked. That's the only reason. Because you asked. Do you think I would sit here and be this irritated? Mr. Brooks, I need to make a record. So just please sit down. There's no need for you to stand at the moment. Uh, I feel like standing right now. Please sit down. I feel like standing. How is it not relevant? Photos just don't pop up out of the blue. Mr. Brooks, uh, assumes facts, not in evidence. No, and any and point of conduct right after facts. the alleged. I also want to make a record that Mr. Brooks has put his shirt back on. He continues to sit with his back to the camera. Mr. Brooks, I want you to be advised that I believe it's important that you face the camera so that you are facing the court. You can see and hear. Um, I, it's my understanding you uh, were not willing to cooperate with. That, uh, one of the jurors, the lady in the black that's closest to the screen, that corner chair over there, I recognize her from um, my initial appearance. She flipped me off coming in to my initial appearance and coming out. Uh, preside over this case here today. I, I am object, well aware I that's another interruption. I'm well aware. Stop talking. I'm well aware, Mr. Brooks, that you object to the name to that any, uh, has identified on the information and all documents in this case. Your objection is noted. It does not need name. to be repeated. I will make a record right now. Uh, the court notes a, con a continuing right, objection by Mr. Brooks. Uh, his name 
and uh, that he objects to being here. Uh, I know he's filed a number of documents previously related to that. To Those documents are of record. There's another document that's filed at least two more interruptions just now. I believe I'm up to eight. Mr. Brooks, you're advised that continued interruptions will result in you forfeiting your right to be present in this courtroom where you'll be taken to the courtroom next door to appear by video and audio means to participate. To from the courtroom. In, that's another interruption. You haven't shown me any lawful uh, case law that I can be removed from the court Mr. proceedings in a trial and forced under coercion and, and, and duress to appear in the trial that I needed that I'm trying to express that I have the Mr. Right Brooks, to there's a proper manner in which you raise objections. You have not followed that proper procedure. You are unable or unwilling to abide by simple rules of civility. You, you interrupt, you don't wait for anyone to finish. Mr. Brooks, I'm not gonna play games with you. I'm, I'm giving not, you I'm an opportunity. Gonna, and I told you you that either I'm go to your cell and you get your hand or not. You said, I, I don't understand. All right, I've made that clear. I don't you know how many to not understand, and that's been made very clear. Oh, I don't there, understand. Sir. You're so. not going to get me to consent to something that I don't consent to or agree to. I do no. not understand. All right. Just Mr. Like Brooks, I don't we're going to take a recess so that the court is, can is, get this information exactly like on the state. From the okay, he's continuing with his disruptive behavior. It is his choice to do that. Mr. Brooks, you are hereby warned once again, if you continue with that, you will be removed from the oh, courtroom. Removed. Requesting to go to the other courtroom? I told, I told you that before I even came over here. Sir, are you requesting to I go? I told you that before I even came over Mr. here. Mr. Brooks, are you that requesting? It was pointless with me to come over here. You can smile all you want to think Sir, I, my, I, my don't, I don't take this as a joke. I don't take this as a game. You, my you preference have, you is for you to be you here. You expect me to answer all these questions that you have me, Your Honor, but you have yet to answer one question that I've asked you. You have yet right. to verify anything. You can take them back to the other uh, room yeah, has been disrupted. Thank you, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. We'll have to yeah, yeah, get the court I don't know who is going to stop when I move this court for a motion to dismiss. Everyone here has been respectful other than you throughout uh, these proceedings. I object to that respectfully. I have not been disruptive. And I do not see any uh, paperwork that you just described to be in Mr. front Brooks, of you. I'm going to continue with a finding right now that you have flagrantly disregarded elementary standards of proper conduct. Paperwork that is not based factually in law. I don't give my consent. We have the jurors here. And I do not. To stop asking those questions. It will be considered an interrupt. He's interrupted. Take him to the next courtroom. I'll yes. make more findings when he is in the courtroom uh, next door, and I can do that without any interruption. He continues to be in the other courtroom. You can see on the monitor um, he's standing. He's facing the other direction. He's yelling. What I can't hear him, but it appears that he is yelling. I muted him because of his uh, interruptions of the court. There was one time where he was glaring at Judge Dora, like a death stare. I have a picture of it on my Instagram. You have to see this to believe this. She actually said out loud, he is scaring me. And I, I'll want to play for you exactly what she said. All right, I need to take a break. 
This man right now is having a stare down with me. It's very disrespectful. He pounded his fist. Frankly, it makes me scared. By the way, he was shackled to the table throughout the trial. So he couldn't approach witnesses. He couldn't jump up and attack people or whatever. He had to basically use his eyeballs as a weapon, which he did. So at his sentencing hearing, Daryl Brooks had his mother and grandmother speak on his behalf, and they actually appeared via Zoom. They weren't really in the courtroom. And at first, I recorded their whole entire speech, both of them. It was like 11 minutes. And I thought, no, that's too much audio. I don't want to make this too audio heavy because I want to save the best audio of all, which is from the judge. And that that one's pretty long, but it's so important that I had to include a lot of it and along with my commentary, and that's going to be psychology. But I just want to react to a couple things that his mother and grandmother said. And I'm not speaking right now. I'm taking off my podcaster hat. I'm speaking as somebody who really is bipolar, mentally ill. And I must say that I found both of them very offensive. And if you're wondering what could a little old grandmother have to say that offended you, Karen, well, first of all, let me play this little snippet for you. First of all, from the bottom of my heart, I want to offer my sincere apologies to those who have been hurt so badly by what has happened here, this um, tragedy that has been caused by my grandson. What's important there is the word she used. She said, I want to apologize for the terror or, or whatever, the violence caused by my grandson. And this is the closest we're ever going to hear out of him or anybody in his family to admitting that he directly caused this mayhem and terror. So now she goes on to say something. Oh, I should mention she's a minister. She has doctor in her title. I'm assuming that's doctor of divinity because that's usually what ministers are. But the next thing she says kind of irritates me, and I'll play it for you. Will thoroughly and humbly apologize and ask all of you and God for forgiveness for this horrible, terrible deed. Some of you have said that you will never forgive him. Please do not be like the man who drank the poison and hoped his enemy would die. Unforgiveness is a terrible disease, just like mental illness is. Hold up. Wait a minute. Did she just tell people, victims, how to grieve? I think she kind of did. There were some victims who spoke, ones who had been hurt and ones who had had relatives killed. Some people said, I forgive him, I pray for him, blah, blah, blah. That's all well and good. Some said, I hate him, I will never forgive him. That's fine, too. As a victim, nobody should tell you how to grieve, whether it's appropriate to forgive whoever hurt you or not. That really pissed me off. Okay, then she said this. Daryl has uh, suffered from bipolar since the age of 12, and it was that disorder that caused him 
to drive through that crowd. It is my prayer that he will be treated for this illness, that I care about people and their well-being. I've spent more than half of my life helping what the Bible calls the least of these, a.k.a. society's rejects. Since this tragedy, I have become a mental health coach. This will help me better understand this horrible disease, which has plagued my family for generations. Now, hold up a minute. It sure sounds to me like she just used the Bible to refer to mentally ill people, including myself, as society's rejects. I'm really biting my tongue. I'm really struggling to be professional here. But I object to being called one of society's rejects because I'm mentally ill. And I also object to that on behalf of all the people who are truly mentally ill, which does not include her grandson, Daryl. As you can see, his mother and grandmother are blaming, well, we've known this. It's been their theme. I'll just real briefly go through what his mother said. It was more the same. Oh, by the way, his grandmother spends the rest of her time, and like I said, it's a Zoom call, so you can literally see her there sitting in her house looking at a computer. She's reading from a website statistics about mental illness. So she thinks that she's enlightening people by spouting off these statistics. When Daryl's mother Dawn talks, she does the same thing. Different stats, but it's still literally reading off WebMD or something facts about mental illness. Some more Bible quotes, some more blah, 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 bullshit, bullshit, whatever. One of the victims, and it was either... I watched a lot. I watched like all of them. It was either the son or the husband of one of the murdered women said that he personally blames Daryl's mother for what her son turned into. So I thought to myself, and I'm not even being sarcastic when I say this. I know it's hard to believe, but I'm not. I'm thinking maybe if his mother and grandmother weren't so busy reading the Bible and memorizing verses, and paid attention to what the fuck this dude was doing as a kid, which was running amok, then maybe, just maybe, they could have got him into some kind of help, or at least not have been so enabling. And I know it's been said that he was in a mental hospital at age 12, but that hasn't been verified anywhere. I mean, we know he's a liar. Pretty much can't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. And let me tell you, people who really are bipolar, like he claims to be, remember the video of him in the interrogation. He was crying about, my shoulder hurts. I haven't had a shower. I haven't had a phone call. If he was truly suffering from any kind of mental illness, the main thing he would have been crying about was, I haven't had my medicine. Did you hear him say that? No, he did not. If I was arrested, I take a few different kinds of psychotropic medicines. I would cry if I was held overnight. I would say, hey, I'm mentally ill. 
I need my medicine. But we never heard that. He complained about everything else under the sun, but not that particular thing. Well, this judge, Judge Jennifer Doro, this wonderful, awesome, excellent judge that she was during the sentencing, she actually spoke for about two hours. And if you're really interested in this case, I encourage you to go somewhere on YouTube. It's on the Law and Crime Network. It's on many different TV channels. It was heavily televised. You can watch the entire thing and the sentencing, which I did. I can sit here and tell you what happened, but without seeing the victim's talk, the way he acts, it's just not the same unless you see it. And of course, they have exhibits, they have maps and so forth that I just can't provide to you. But the next big audio clip, and it is long, I thought that it was so important that I recorded this whole big chunk of what the judge said during her speech. It's all about mental illness, and she spends a lot of time reading from the psychology reports on Brooks. I told you, I don't know if you remember, he was analyzed by four different psychologists, and they all pretty much came to the same conclusion. She spells it out for us, and I just can't put it any more succinctly and eloquently than she does or that she does through whoever wrote this report. So that's why I'm going to play this for you, and I'll chime in every once in a while with uh, an explanation or to clarify something or to note something. So this is dessert. This is psychology. This is the heart of the matter right here. This is hopefully, I don't know about you, but this is why I'm here. This is why we've, what we've spent all this time leading up to is why did he do it? What is wrong with him? And the answer is in here. So here we go. This is Judge Dora. I'm not here to debate that you have had a history over time of intersecting with the mental health agencies and that you may have in your history trauma, emotional pain, and things of that nature. I have read through not one, not two, not three, but four reports from experts individuals who have an expertise in evaluating a plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. Because I don't want there to be any doubt in my sentencing here today that I've considered that. Because the fact is Mr. Brooks entered a special plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect in the early summer, maybe late spring of this year. And this court ordered three court-ordered evaluations, but I have four well-known doctors who have written this court based upon the orders that were made or the person, one doctor being retained. And these are reports that are thorough, and they look at the discovery information, so police reports, videographic evidence, things of that nature. They have access to any mental health-related 
records from prior stays or things like that. They look at a history. They meet with Mr. Brooks. And I will restate what I stated at that point. I have absolutely no doubt that Mr. Brooks is competent, Jens. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I think it's important because it goes also to Mr. Brooks's character, which is one of the things that this court must consider along with his rehabilitative needs. And I'm going to read parts of these evaluations so that you all understand the information that I have and why it is my opinion that mental health issues did not cause him to do what he did on November 21 of 2021 and frankly did not play a role. Did you catch that? She basically shot down all of his attempts and his mother's and grandmother's attempts to blame mental illness. She just stomped it out with her foot. And this is what one of the reports has to say. They looked at uh, one doctor indicated that there was available evidence to sustain a diagnosis of cannabis abuse, intoxication, antisocial personality disorder, adjustment disorder with mixed disturbance of emotions and conduct. The diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, and this is what the doctor said, reflects converging support of an underlying characterological disorder versus a major mental illness. A characterological disorder is another term for personality disorder, which is not a mental illness. In Mr. Brooks's case, I would note his history of disregarding the rights of others and conforming to societal norms, including in the forms of multiple acts of violence beginning in his youth, contact with the criminal justice system, lack of remorse as indicated by being indifferent, rationalizing, etc. Doctor goes on that it's her understanding that this characterological condition would not qualify as a mental disease or defect goes on to talk about her opinion regarding criminal non-responsibility. That simply means how everything is somebody else's fault, like the Prade massacre was Erica's fault, remember? And the examiner rendered an opinion to a reasonable degree of professional certainty that there was not support for the defendant's special plea that the facts at hand do not sustain a conclusion to a reasonable degree of professional certainty that because of symptoms of a mental disease or defect, Mr. Brooks was rendered to lack substantial capacity either to appreciate the wrongfulness of the alleged misconduct or conform his conduct to the requirements of the law at the time in question. In effect, there is not a stained, documented history of a diagnosed major mental illness for him predating the alleged offense or otherwise. Looked at a psychiatric review from April of 2010. Uh, at that point, the defendant was determined to have no medically determinable impairment on which to qualify for disability benefits. The consultant who conducted the review noted that Mr. Brooks claimed mental illness was not, quote, well established, quote, that the statements that he made at that point were not deemed credible, they were inconsistent and not verified by treatment providers in the community. It appears that in 2010, he applied for some sort of disability based on a claim of mental illness. And after being evaluated by a psychiatrist or psychologist, this professional called bullshit. In other words, he was faking. Factor number two, the defendant's history of violence. Beginning years predating the alleged offense is significant. 
He faced multiple prior domestic-related charges. He was not permitted in his mother's home because of the history of violence. To be sure, the magnitude and lethality of Mr. Brooks's violence in the commission of the alleged offenses is more severe than what was previously known. However, the defendant's history of a pattern of violent behavior, coupled with other aspects of his history, and this case strongly suggests that his mental state, which produced the alleged offenses, was most fundamentally formed and fueled by contributions of his underlying characterological dysfunction, anger and rage born of his conflict with his girlfriend moments before the Christmas parade tragedy. That was it right there. Pre-crime stressor or the precipitating event. The argument with Erica before the parade and his subsequent rage. The examiner considered Mr. Brooks's episodic endorsement of auditory hallucinations, including on clinical interview with the undersigned, meaning the examiner, and in a couple of recorded jail phone calls subsequent to his arrest. She said this, I am unaware of any objective cooperation that he presented either in the hours leading up to or following the alleged offenses as internally preoccupied or otherwise exhibiting signs of impaired reality, contact, or behavioral discontrol. What that means is that at one time or another, probably when he was being examined by these experts, he faked symptoms of psychosis, either auditory or visual hallucinations. To the contrary, the defendant's conduct within hours of the onset and moments following the alleged misconduct was organized, controlled, and purposeful. Moreover, he demonstrated the motivation and capacity to take efforts to evade detection and try to flee the immediate area of the parade carnage. She went on, I have considered the seemingly inexplicable nature and magnitude of the violence and mayhem wrought by the defendant's conduct on the day in question. He has caused six deaths, dozens of injuries, and terrorized hundreds of parade participants and thousands of spectators. There is no indication in the extensive compilation of records and other information available that at the time of the alleged misconduct, he lacked substantial capacity to either control or conform his conduct to the requirements of the law, or that his reality contact capacity to appreciate wrongfulness was substantially impaired. You may notice she uses the phrase reality contact a number of times. That just means he was in touch with reality or sane in his right mind at the time of the offense. In the context of rage born of his conflict and altercation with his former girlfriend, Turmoil, the defendant was disinclined to control his behavior or attend to its consequences. Notwithstanding the magnitude of the violence in this case, a mental disease or defect is not defined by the unnaturalness or enormity of the act. Moreover, temporary passion or frenzy prompted by revenge, hatred, jealousy, envy, or the like does not constitute a mental disease or defect. She goes on to talk about the course of functioning of Mr. Brooke during the day leading up to the alleged offense. It does not suggest that he was behavior, behaviorally dysregulated or that his reality contact was impaired. goes on to talk about what he did in the immediate aftermath of the parade, including fleeing the vicinity, um, making efforts to evade detection or responsibility, 
and other things. Went on to discuss other evidence, including uh, the videographic evidence of the ring doorbell and being on the porch where he sought to use the phone. He had apparently discarded a couple of small bags, later determined to contain marijuana. By implication, such conduct strongly suggests his capacity to appreciate wrongfulness was then intact. Once again, this is important. His behavior was goal-directed, meaning ditch the car, ditch the sweatshirt, flee. When responding to law enforcement officials, he followed their commands. He lowered himself to the ground. We saw that on the recording of his arrest. He was taken into custody and detained. None of the behaviors nor verbal remarks at the time of the arrest suggest he was behaviorally dysregulated or that his reality contact was impaired. Following his arrest and being taken into custody, he engaged in an informal series of verbal exchanges with authorities, and none of his statements taken at face value suggest he was then actively psychotic or that his behavior controls were substantially impaired. She then goes on to talk about the Mirandai statements. This court personally watched every minute of that interaction with Detective Carpenter and Detective Stern, along with the one from the night before, which was at the hospital within hours. And I would concur with the examiner's conclusions that the content of his initial statements to authorities included multiple efforts to deceive or mislead. He changed his story multiple times, including he initially denied being in Waukesha the prior Saturday. He initially asserted he traveled to Waukesha on the day in question in a tan Kia with a friend. He initially asserted his mother did not own a vehicle, though later acknowledged as much, and that he used it from time to time. Other changes in his story over the course of his statements and the nature of them further suggest that he was making active attempts to evade detection or responsibility. By implication, such behavior strongly suggests that his reality contact was then in when he was shown photographs of driving in the SUV into the parade route he indicated it was not him it was not until Mr. Brooks was in the booking area of the Waukesha County Jail that he displayed some emotion and this was to I believe Detective Stern and he was and he said I didn't mean to kill nobody such a remark indicates an awareness of the consequences of his actions and runs counter to a conclusion of an exculpatory mental disease or defect. All four examiners shared similar uh, observations. Certainly their conclusions were that there was not support for the special plea. This particular examiner went on to say, while he essentially, meaning Mr. Brooks, disclaimed any memory of those actions and could therefore not explain them, such behavior strongly suggests an awareness of wrongdoing and a desire to avoid detection. Another examiner had very similar things, antisocial personality disorder with borderline features. What's interesting about this particular report is the description of an antisocial personality disorder. The DSM-5 defines antisocial personality disorder as a pervasive pattern of disregard for a violation of the rights of others occurring since age 15 years, as indicated by three or more of the following. Failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behavior, as indicated by repeated performing acts that are grounds for arrest. Two, deceitfulness, as indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure. Three, impulsivity or failure to 
plan ahead for irritability and aggressiveness as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults. Five, reckless disregard for safety of self and others. Six, consistent irresponsibility as indicated by repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor financial obligations. Seven, lack of remorse as indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another. In addition, the individual is at least 18 years old and there's evidence of a conduct disorder prior to the age of 15. This examiner noted Mr. Brooks meets nearly all of the symptoms described above because he has exhibited a long-term maladaptive pattern of behavior involving a disregard for in violation of the rights of others. Beginning in childhood, the borderline features reflect a general inability to sustain healthy relationships with others, including his domestically violent relationship with victim PPP. Why is that important? There is no doubt that in our criminal justice system today, we face a crisis of the mentally ill intersecting in our courts. And the bottom line is for this court, Mr. Brooks does not present as a person who is either not competent or not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. It is frankly heartbreaking to see those individuals who truly suffer from schizophrenia, for example, intersect in our criminal justice system. Sometimes they do unspeakable things. They hurt other people. Do the mentally ill sometimes commit atrocious crimes? They do. This is not one of those situations. We've heard Mr. Brooks's family talk about mental illness and bipolar. I've also had over my 11 years on the bench of coming face to face with evil on occasion. There are many times, many times, good people do bad things, but there are times when evil people do bad things. There is no medication or treatment for a heart that is bent on evil. Child trauma, bipolar, indifference, physical abuse of a child, or even childhood trauma did not cause Daryl Brooks to commit the acts for which he will be sentenced here today. It's very clear to this court that he understands the difference between right and wrong, and that he simply chooses to ignore his conscience. He is fueled by anger and rage. Some people, unfortunately, choose a path of evil. And I think, Mr. Brooks, you are one of those. As a mom, my heart breaks for your family, for your mom, and for your grandmother. The son that she raised, the grandson that your grandmother knew, the hopes and dreams they had for your life, they're gone. And I think it's perhaps far easier for them to blame a mental illness than to perhaps come to grips with their son very, very bad things, do the very bad but the bottom line is none of that caused you to do what you did on November 21 of 2021. And I think it's important that the sentence here today focuses on your conduct on November 21 of 2021 and the moments leading up to that tragic and fateful decision of yours to drive through the Waukesha Christmas Parade. And of course, the moments after. I, of course, through my sentencing remarks and ultimately what I do here today, I can't answer all of the questions, including the why. Perhaps the one question that will remain unanswered. Why? Why did you barrel down White Rock Avenue? Why did you not stop? 
Why did you keep going? That was the honorable and awesome Jennifer Doro, and I could not have put it any better. I forgot to mention this tidbit of what Daryl was sentenced to. On the six counts of homicide, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of extended supervision, in other words, parole. On the 76 counts of first-degree reckless endangerment of safety with the use of a dangerous weapon, he was sentenced to 17 and a half years for each to be served consecutively, meaning a total of 762 and a half years. When the judge passed the sentence, she said, quote, you have absolutely no remorse for anything that you do. You have no empathy for anyone. Frankly, Mr. Books, no one is safe from you, end quote. And of course, during his sentencing, Daryl made a two-hour tearful whining statement, of which I'm not going to play because, quite frankly, we've all had enough of listening to his bullshit. But a couple things he said jumped out at me. One of them was, quote, I'm sorry for what happened, end quote. Notice the use of words. Words are very important when we're talking about confessions, interrogations, interviews, things that people say. You have to read between the lines. He didn't say, I'm sorry for what I did. He said, I'm sorry for what happened. It's using the passive voice. He probably doesn't even consciously realize that he's doing it, but what he's doing is taking the blame off of him, which he is so good at. Then he was talking about Erica, and he said, quote, I always have love for you and respect you, but it always takes two, end quote. Meaning, there he goes again. He's blaming her for pretty much everything. Now, to dig a little bit more into the psychology definitions, we've been using the term bipolar disorder a lot. He and his family kept claiming that he has it. Judge Dora called bullshit on that. And just in case you're not clear on what bipolar is, bipolar disorder is what we call an axis one disorder. And I did explain that in one of the episodes I did, how if you get a psychological evaluation, it's broken down into axis one disorders, which are physical ailments like, I don't know, cancer, any kind of substance abuse things. Like, remember in his, it said cannabis dependency. That just means he's a pothead. So what? And all the people I've ever known who were potheads were pretty chill, like Snoop Dogg, okay? Can you picture Snoop getting in an SUV and killing people? No, it's that's beside the point. You have your Axis One, which is like the serious mental health illnesses like bipolar, schizophrenia. Then you have Axis Two, which is the personality disorders. That's what he has. He was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And remember the episode, I think it was in September, I talked about the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths. So just for fun, what would you say that he is? I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to call something out. Yeah. My money would be on sociopath because, remember, psychopaths are born, sociopaths are made. A sociopath is somebody who, I gave the example, just doesn't know how to act. 
loses their temper easily, is aggressive, fights with people. Psychopaths are more adept at hiding their problem. They can more easily blend into society and kind of fit in. Psychopaths tend to be in the government, politics, surgeons, anything that requires a lot of power. They tend to be narcissistic and like power. Daryl Brooks strikes me more as a sociopath with the aggression and the temper tantrums. And it seems like pretty much anybody he's ever had contact with could tell you there's something wrong with that dude. But that's just my guess. And I, I was telling you about what bipolar is. Bipolar disorder is actually not only a mental illness, but it's considered a disease of the entire body, which is kind of hard to explain. It's a little bit hard to understand, but for some reason, it affects everything about you, your entire body, your sleeping and your just general health and well-being. And usually people with bipolar are medicated, as am I. That's why I made the statement that I thought if he really was bipolar, he would have been crying because he didn't have his medicine. And if you're in custody, whether you're in jail, prison, whatever it is, if you're mentally ill, they will make sure that you have your medicine because they don't want somebody losing their shit in their custody. Easily explained, bipolar disorder is a mood disorder, and it's characterized by presence of both mania, which is your ops, but it's not like a normal person's happy mood. It can be anything from like you're on cocaine, you're high, you're euphoric, to a bad type of up where you're aggressive. You may do stupid things, make bad decisions, to your downs, your de depressions. Again, these are not normal depressions, like most people get sad or the blues or whatever you want to call it. These are deep, dark depressions that a lot of times result in suicide for the bipolar person. So that's mainly what bipolar disorder is. Remember I made the comment way back that supposedly he was 11 when he was diagnosed as bipolar, and I said I find that very hard to believe. Well, it's not unknown for kids to be diagnosed as bipolar, but it's very, very rare. It's not something that usually shows itself until at least you're a teenager. Kids are hard to diagnose. They're often misdiagnosed as such and such when it's really, you know, a few years later, their behavior changes after they've gone through puberty and they've kind of settled down into their, I guess you would call it, adult personality. And you might look at them different and see different signs and symptoms and their diagnosis might change as, oh, okay, now this person is showing signs of such and such disease. So I'm just saying that I personally find it hard to believe that he was really diagnosed as bipolar at that young. Or as it turns out, it looks like he's just not bipolar at all. But he was diagnosed with, as I'm sure you heard the judge say a few times, antisocial personality disorder, which we know is you're either sociopath or psychopath, with borderline features. 
So what that means is obviously a antisocial personality disorder with a little bit of features of the borderline personality disorder mixed in. So it blends into this recipe of ugly nastiness. People who are borderline or who who have borderline personality disorder, some things that they experience or they demonstrate are angry outbursts, anxiety, depression, self-damaging behaviors, emotional dysregulation. What that means is poorly regulated emotional response. And that's a fancy term for doesn't know how to act, can't keep their temper in check, doesn't know how to behave properly. That's all that means. Probably the main hallmark of borderline personality disorder is conflict in interpersonal relationships. And that means I'm thinking in my head of a couple people I know who who I think are borderline, who certainly seem to fit all the characteristics. And this this just screams out about them. It's like any kind of relationship they're ever in, whether it's a romantic relationship, it's people at work, it's friends, they simply cannot get along with people. That's a major highlight of being borderline. It's one of those types of people who it's like there's always drama with them. They're always causing some kind of stirring up shit, basically. Now, these two disorders, antisocial and borderline, they often go together because they are similar. And I want to go over something that Daryl's mother, Dawn Woods, told the news. There's actually like a, um, I think they call those things, they're not memes, they're like words on a screen. They interviewed her. And they wrote these words on their TV screen. And this is actually from Court TV. But she gave an interview. She, again, tried to blame his behavior on being bipolar. These are quotes from her. Something caused him to have a psychotic break. He was already manic, and that took him over the edge. He has a mental illness, and he's not medicated. A manic person that is not medicated acts out. One of those is true, two are not. Can you guess which one's true? The third one is, if you're bipolar and you're not medicated, yeah, you're going to be unstable. However, he's not bipolar. So as to the other two statements, remember I was just telling you about mania and I said some people like me, I get a euphoria like I'm high or I feel like I'm flying. Usually it's a good feeling. Other people, and these are the unfortunate people, get aggressive. They do things like use drugs and alcohol, become promiscuous, spend a lot of money. I've done that. I will admit that I'm guilty of that. Sometimes when I'm manic, I have been known to get a little stupid with money, gamble, just um, risky types of behaviors or things that aren't very smart that they wouldn't normally do if they weren't manic. She also makes the claim in one of her interviews that when he was driving for the parade, or should I say, when he was running over and killing people, Daryl was manic. And after it happened, he had a blackout and didn't remember what he had just done. I have two things to say about that. Having a blackout 
after you're manic, like being manic, doing something, and then not remembering it is extremely rare. I've personally never even heard of this, of other people experiencing this, but I did research and I learned that it has happened. It is possible, but not only is it rare and unlikely, we also know it's total bullshit because, as the judge said in her speech that we just listened to, after he had run people over, he exhibited goal-oriented, goal-directed, cognitively aware behavior. I've got to ditch this car. i got to get this rid of this sweatshirt because they're going to be looking for me. i got to get my ass out of Waukesha. Everything he did demonstrated that he knew damn well what he had just done. And supposedly later that night in jail, he made a comment to one of the officers. I I believe the exact words were, I didn't mean to kill nobody. So he knew exactly what he had done. And any claim otherwise is complete and total bullshit. Now, his mom said that she thought he had a psychotic break. Now, what exactly is a psychotic break? Yes, it is an actual thing. It wasn't that. He did not have one. But a psychotic break in the the operative word here is break, is you literally break with reality. You hear things, see things, smell things that aren't there. You can have delusions like false beliefs, what they call disorganized speech, like rambling, like mumbo jumbo, stuff that just doesn't even make sense. And it's pretty obvious when somebody has either had or is in the process of having a psychotic break. He was absolutely none of those. He might have looked kind of like a crazy person running around with no shoes and a short sleeve shirt, but upon closer examination, we see that that was done very purposely. I don't really understand the shoes, but he took off his sweatshirt because it would identify him. And it wouldn't be an episode of True Crime University if I didn't have to get in my own personal opinion on what I think's wrong with him. Now, here's my disclaimer. I'm not a psychiatrist or I'm not trained in anything like this. I just have a bachelor's in psychology and I like to speculate on what might be wrong with somebody. We've just heard literal diagnoses from real psychologists, but I'm just throwing my own opinion in here in that I think there's another condition that suits him, and that is malignant narcissism. There are actually a few different types of narcissists, and narcissists are people whose predominant traits are being selfish and thoughtless, also self-absorbed and manipulative, which after listening to his rambling speeches in court and his interrogation, I think that we can agree that he's demonstrated all of those qualities. The malignant narcissist is the most severe type of narcissist, and this term was coined by social psychologist Eric Fromm, and he called this personality, quote, the quintessence of evil, end quote. And I think that is very fitting of Mr. Brooks here. 
Somebody who's a malignant narcissist has a total lack of empathy. They may be sadistic. They can also show some paranoia. They are not able to self-regulate, meaning control their behavior. They tend to lash out and they have no remorse for hurting others. I have a little asterisk next to this one. They have a tendency to blame others for their own bad behavior. I think Daryl Brooks is like the poster child for that particular trait. Malignant narcissist is not an official diagnosis. It's a combination of antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, aggression, and sadism. So again, a mixture of things, of personality traits and personality disorders, none of which are good, and they all combine into this nasty, malicious stew, if you will. Now, I wanted to end this with something positive, and there's not a whole lot in this case, but I managed to find some things. There's a dude named J.J. Watt, who, of course, I've never heard of, and I had to look him up, but it turns out he's a football player. That's why I didn't know who he was. He plays for the Arizona Cardinals, and he's from Wisconsin, which explains this. He paid for all six of the funerals for the victims, which is so awesome of him. We need more people with money, athletes and millionaires and and people who have more money than they know what to do with. We need more of these people to step up and help. And speaking of people helping, just about every person that was affected by this massacre and other organizations started GoFundMes. And they received, in total, I think it was like, I don't have the exact number, it was like $7 million just from generous people all around the world stepped up to help these people out. And I really like this. This is really cool. Judge Doro and the head prosecutor, Sue Whopper, both received fan mail from all over the world, emails and letters and gifts. Judge Doro got like roses and wine and stuff. It's so nice to see people appreciating how hard these public servants work and what a great job they did just for putting up with this obnoxious motherfucker for however many days they should have gotten treats. But the public was very appreciative of them. And I was trying to think of what we could do to pay tribute to the victims because all the research I've done on them, and I I watched the sentencing, and I watched all of the victims and family members talk, and I was just overcome with sadness and disgust with him, but sadness for these family members. And I, I wanted to do something, so I looked into all the different charities. If you look at my show notes, I've had it for the past four weeks. It's an address. If you donate to that address in Waukesha, it's going to go to build a memorial, you know, a like a, a statue type thing. And I think it's in my, somewhere on Instagram, I have a, it's like a, a drawing, a concept drawing of it because it's obvious it's not there yet. But you can either put it towards this memorial fund or And I will also put this in my show notes so that you can see it if you want. There's, I want to say about 20 GoFundMes that are still active 
of the the victims, either the people who were killed or people who are still having ongoing medical problems. And GoFundMe itself was nice enough to round up all the legitimate ones and put them on one spot so that you can look at them and go through and say, hmm, who would I like to donate to? Or maybe would I I like to give a little bit to each one? So I think personally what I'm going to do is maybe find the ones who haven't met their goal or who haven't raised a lot of money. Looks like they maybe could use a little boost. But if you want to have a cry fest for yourself, watch the victims give their statements. The things they said about their relatives, like uh, Jane, her daughter talked, and she was just absolutely heartbreaking. She was only like 18. And can can you imagine you're 18 and your mother dies or, or your mother's murdered? And she said that her sisters called her pain, you know, Jane, pain is a joke. And her nieces and nephews called her anti-pain. I just thought that was hilarious. Such a nice little memory of her that she shared with everybody. And all of the victims had these nice little stories. One guy, the husband of one of the dancing grannies, he had on a dancing granny's sweatshirt. I'm, I'm telling you, there was not a dry eye in the courtroom, except for one person. And I think we can all figure out who that was. Even the judge was crying. I'm not shitting you. So if you're so inclined, give those a watch. And speaking of watching things, I want to shout out a couple YouTube channels that I stumbled upon. The first one is called The Lawyer You Know. It's a dude named Peter Tragos in Florida. He, Yeah, he's actually a lawyer. He featured the case on his channel and he would play it and then he would comment on stuff, you know, as an expert, as a lawyer on exactly what's going on here. And he takes people's questions. And he's so interesting and educational and fun to watch. Nice to look at, too. But check him out, the lawyer you know. And another guy on YouTube, he does true crime, but he really focused heavily on this this incident. And he even had Erica come on the show. His name is Norman Nix. And his channel is called The Norman Nix Show. That's N-I-C-K-S. So if you want to see Erica, and he has some actual records that he got from court, he, he shows you and talks in depth about this case, give him a try. Also, I mentioned this guy before. His name's Paul, and he has a dog, Roscoe. His channel is called, on YouTube, Reporting Live from My Sofa. He's covered this case. Most of the comments I've seen on all the various platforms, social media platforms that I've looked at, most of them think that his mother enabled him. She bailed him out. She gave him her car, which, of course, was the weapon in this case. And don't forget, he used it to run over Erica like three weeks before that. A couple people predicted that some of these victims and their families were going to try to sue Dawn. So it's going to be interesting to see if that happens. And it was Jenny Sorensen's son who said in his statement that he holds Daryl's mother partly responsible for the tragedy. So this has been a long and I'm just glad I'm done talking about it because 
I'm so tired of, of looking at and listening to this motherfucker. But on the other hand, I think about the victims a lot. And, well, hopefully you do too, because they're what this is about. We want to know why did this happen to these people. And hopefully I did my job and provided some answers. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think I'm useful for something because I'm not useful for a whole lot of things. This episode is dedicated to Bill, Jane, Jackson, Tammy, Jenny, and Lee, and Judge Doro, Sue, Zach, and Leslie, the prosecutors. And a lot of the victims mentioned somebody named Jennifer, who was a victim advocate that was very helpful to them. And apparently they had a dog. Her name is Pepper, who was like a like a, one of those emotional support dogs who provided a lot of comfort to them. So this should come out on Thanksgiving in the United States anyway. Have a good Thanksgiving. That's probably, you've probably eaten and everything by the time you hear this. But have a good holiday weekend. Don't go crazy on the day after Thanksgiving shopping. Stay home if you can. And I'll see you next week. Class dismissed. Ugh. <sighs>